0: What is as today Albania sits at the westernmost tip of the former Ottoman Empire, closer to Naples than to Istanbul. Despite the distance, Albanians were so thoroughly integrated into Ottoman society that they waited longer to break away from the empire than almost anyone else. When the Balkan League declared war on the empire in November of 1912, Albanian officials reluctantly declared their independence. The dramatic events that would soon unfold in southeastern Europe Two Balkan Wars, followed by World War I in 1914, transformed Ottoman Albania's political fortunes. Threatened with Italian colonization and Balkan nationalisms, Albanians, like many others around the world, turned their minds towards U.S. President Woodrow Wilson's call for the right to self-determination for small peoples everywhere. At the forefront of calls for Albanian self-determination after World War I stood a remarkable woman— Paraskevi Curias, a member of Albania's small but influential Protestant community, went to Paris in 1919 to make Albania's case to heads of state, ambassadors, and diplomats, nearly all of whom were men. Luckily for historians, while she was running around Paris lobbying for Albania's future, Paraskevi also found the time to keep a diary. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Navila Pahumi about that diary. Which she has just translated under the title The Diary of a Protestant Woman Diplomat, Parascivi Kyrias, the United States, and Albania at the Paris Peace Conference. We see how this unique source in the history of women's political work and Albanian nationalism also tells a complex story about education, women's activism, and Protestant networks in the wider Ottoman world. We'll also hear how the memory of Parascivi's work in Paris was first repressed and then reclaimed by the Albanian state, showing how this story about feminism and faith at empires close lived on into a post-Ottoman world.
1: I remember when I found it I was just so excited by you know it just opens up such a big world it's like oh peace conference oh my god Paris Peace Conference like she is she is I'd known her story for a long time Um, she's popularized in film in communist era film Um, she and her family um, are notable for uh, significant contributions towards the standardization of the Albanian language, and also for running the first state state-sanctioned, so Ottoman state sanctioned vernacular vernacular school for girls. That's kind of what makes them important in Albanian history, in Albanian historiography. I mean, they're interesting because they're part of a Protestant minority. They create a non-denominational movement in Ottoman Macedonia. Um, She is one of a family of 10 Albanian activists, Albanian Christian activists is the correct term. Um, They convert to Protestantism, it's a sibling process, it's a sibling initiated sort of uh, process. Uh, They convert through neighborly interactions in the 1870s, they live in Monastir, and their next-door neighbor happens to be an American missionary who uh, is representing the American board. One day, he notices that a little girl among them is stricken sick with malaria, and he has medicine to offer, and it becomes one of many meetings that kind of sets the stage for the family's eventual kind of wholesale conversion and full immersion into kind of simultaneous British and American missionary um, movements, both influential in this part of the Ottoman Empire, the second half of the 19th century.
0: These transnational ties would in many ways change the course of Paraskevi's life, preparing her for a debut on the stage of high diplomacy and global politics in 1919.
1: Paris Cavey, in 1919, is 33 years old. She's been spending all of World War I in Boston as a community activist among the Albanian-American diaspora, um, kind of settled in the region in New England, kind of in the first decades of the 20th century. For her, this kind of moment in exile is to serve as a voice for the political claims of territorial sovereignty. Albania is a newly created state. At the end of the Second Balkan Wars, Albania um, becomes recognized as an independent principality by the London Conference of Ambassadors. But that recognition sets the stage for almost immediate contestation by uh, neighboring Balkan countries and also for political rivalries within the country. Kyrias is notable and gets kind of involved in the fight because she has been influential in running the only official uh, school for girls, a vernacular school for girls. This is in the um, Ottoman-Albanian-Greek borderlands. Paraskevi
0: comes to political activism through the issue of women's education.
1: So around the time of the Young Turk Revolution, She gets involved in cultural politics, and it's a process that throws her and her entire family into political activism. Um, She's she's an advocate of cultural rights, specifically education, women's kind of education and organization. And the pushback from the Ottoman authorities pushes her into uh, sort of very active expressions, of Albanian claims for territorial independence, and also women's kind of stake in the nation creating process that kind of follows with that. Her family has to flee uh, Albania at the beginning of the Balkan Wars, the um, the invading Greek um, irredentists threatened to burn their their school to the ground. And so the entire family is forced into exile. And they come to the United States uh, slowly but gradually because in, in the U.S. Um, they have the support of the American board. Just a little bit before Albania's uh, recognition as a principality, The family had come to, had been part of this multilateral agreement with the American board to facilitate the extension of a non-denominational Protestant mission to Albania. Um, And the board sort of very enthusiastically jumps in because they make the the family somehow uh, successfully persuades the board that Albania's friendly Muslims are uh, suddenly ready to embrace Protestantism, and that perhaps this could become some sort of a symbolic sort of standard and then or example um, that the rest of the Muslim Middle East could follow on, and so. Uh, the board's almost 100-year kind of vision of converting this in, this entire area would become a reality. I think that she recognizes the uh, unlikelihood of that. Uh, the Protestant community is a very small and contested minority, um, and they have to carefully sort of tiptoe among the various networks that they're plugged in to sort of, in you know, the create a kind of multiple identities, really, within the world of Albanian um, diplomacy and then Christian work. In
0: 1919, those networks of Albanian diplomacy and Christian work would come together to vault Paraskevi into the halls of power at the peace conference convened in Paris by the victors of World War I, the Allies. It was at this conference that the practical purchase of President Wilson's famous 14-point speech, in which he had gestured at the possibility of self-determination for some of the world's small peoples, would be hashed out. As the conference wore on, it became increasingly clear that Wilson's promise wasn't meant to apply to everyone. Representatives of small peoples would have to fight to be heard. It was in this context that Protestant women, like Paris became so important.
1: The role of Protestant women specifically is connected to uh, the subtle hints of a Protestant element within the American Commission to negotiate peace uh, in Paris. Some members of the commission are former missionary educators. um, And this is kind of the, the key, right? For people like, for women like Paraskevi, uh, the people she has to lobby with for some measure of American protection uh, for Albania. These negotiations are being made with people she trusts. She's been their student, they've been her mentors and her professors. They've seen her intellectual development. And this moment represents a culmination of her experience and, and skill. Education was not only
0: at the center of Paris own politics. It was also her very preparation
1: for entrance into political life. And in this, she was not alone. Within the Ottoman Empire, she's emblematic of a generation, educated um, at Protestant schools. She herself is an al- alumni at the Constantinople uh, College for Girls. I mean what's noticeable about the these Protestant schools like Constantinople Women's College is that after almost a half century of trying to convert their students to Protestantism American schools just sort of give up on that original vision secularize their curricula because they realize that they have rising demand from a middle class invested in the education of their daughters, it's a changing world um, for women. And it becomes obvious to uh, growing numbers of people that um, one, there's nothing wrong with educating their daughters, and two, um, education would open a world of opportunities to them that um, their mothers and preceding generations would not have. She has an important counterpart, highly recognizable counterpart, Halide Edip is also a student at Constantinople uh, College. She also has very important things to say about the future of Turkey. She communicates; both of them communicate these things, their visions to a man who is a a significant supporter, President Woodrow Wilson. This man is Charles Crane, he's a philanthropist, um, from Chicago. His family makes their money in the toilet business, of all things. Crane, he is immersed in all sorts of projects. He loves languages. And he, along the way, develops a almost a love and a dedication of finding sort of political ingenues, if you will, people who are sort of up and coming. Um, many of them are almost obscure and so the f- kind of not, not a discovery of you know them by him but it's almost their meeting points just launches these people's careers into completely new directions elevates them to new heights. A few of them are women so he meets Halide Edip for example uh, in Istanbul he's part of the Crane Commission this is what makes Curious, and all of these women super interesting is lot uh, they're connected to very important stuff. King Crane Commission is basically the United States attempt to make sure that the voices of local nationalists throughout the U- uh, sorry throughout um, um, the Middle East are that their voices are kind of represented and heard at the peace conference uh, at the peace conference and so the King Crane Commission, wants to make sure that Arab voices um, are represented somehow at the Paris Peace Conference because obviously territorial claims for independence in the Middle East um, and also Ottoman Europe itself, former Ottoman Europe, clash quite bitterly with European imperialist projections. Um, And the Americans are the only kind of big power uh, at the kind of seat in Paris that seem to display any kind of concern for inclusion of, you know, uh, perspectives. And so I think that the French and the British are uh, interested in superficial accommodations. While Paris
0: was joined in Paris in 1919 by representatives of would-be nations from around the world, all of them hoping to make a case for self-determination, her gender made her unusual.
1: Uh, I mean, the world of high diplomacy is uh, exclusively male, almost exclusively male. The roles of women there are mostly as auxiliaries, intermediaries, serving as a front for some of the few countries that did actually have female representation in Paris. Among the allied countries, China was the only one to include a woman in its official delegation. What's interesting about Paraskevi is that she's not a member of the um, official Albanian delegation there, but, that be- but she becomes an important go-between for the official Albanian delegation and the American Commission to negotiate peace by virtue of these key connections she has within the commission. That's what makes her important.
0: As she roamed the halls in Paris, seeking support for her nationalist aspirations, Paris-Givy proved herself to be a talented diplomat, advocate, and politician. But her gender would shape what she could accomplish, in both good and bad
1: ways. So much of her recorded experience is gender. She has just sharply worded anger at her Albanian cod. They don't respect Meeting times. She's punctual. She is chasing after the meetings that they're that her mentors recommend. I mean she has an active agenda. She her contacts at the American Commission um, give her a list of a number of suggestions of people to meet with, Italian diplomats, Yugoslav diplomats, and she chases after them with dedication. She shows up uh, sort of ready to defend her vision, recognizing that it is a narrow one in terms of nationalism, but she desperately wants to save Albania from what she correctly recognizes as Italian imperialism. And she's successful in the pursuit among the women that she sort of um, the women that she associates with that kind of make her you know professional kind of aspects a lot easier are. Um, so there's one um, Italian American journalist, Amy Bernardi. Um, super interesting because I think uh, she's correct in suspecting that this woman is a spy. Bernardi is the daughter of Italian-American diplomats. Well, She has interest in kind of the academic study of Italian-Americans, and it's clear that they've met, that she and Paraskevi have met before. And Bernardi suddenly shows up in Paris and tracks her down, tracks Paraskevi down to her hotel. So that kind of clues me into the fact that Bernardi knew what she was doing. Bernardi does set uh, Paraskevi up with conversations with um, highly placed Italian diplomats, the ambassador to the United States, the Italian ambassador to the United States, among them, and also the Italian foreign minister at the time. They were very tense meetings. I mean, Paraskevi is careful to note that her the manner of their reception was very polite, perhaps gendered in the sense that, you know, here's a Protestant, you know, here's a woman. I mean, she comes with a lot of cultural capital, uh, and, and that recognition alone makes her so valuable to the Albanian negotiating team in Paris. And yeah, I mean, she had to deal with a lot of pat- uh, patronism from, it's it, open condescension from the Italian uh, officials, the same is true for the Yugoslav counterpart. He's actually the the Serbian foreign minister. I mean, they're telling her things uh, along the lines of, you know, the Italians just want to help the Albanians out. You know, the Yugoslavs want to help the Albanians out. We have no interest in, you know, territorial expansion there.
0: As she sits in these meetings, Paris is no naive ingenue. She has a clear vision of what she wants for Albania and what she thinks is possible.
1: I think that she recognizes one hundred percent that the likelihood of Albanian sovereignty is a distant prospect. I mean, the course of the uh, the course of uh, nineteen nineteen itself is so wild in terms of just political changes. And so uh, that makes her very anxious and her ideas change sort of by 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 the minute. But she wants to, I mean, she recognizes that the League of Nations is kind of, I mean, this has been talked about and it's being projected. And she is very interested in the possibility of an American mandate over Albania. Um, I mean, the the sort of, The stated effect was that America would provide, if it could, disinterested protection. And so this is what gets American uh, missionaries and educators. They're so kind of enthusiastic about the idea of Wilson and the King Crane Commission itself among the women that she meets with and whose kind of mentorship and sort of Guidance she seeks is uh, her former professor, uh, the president of Constantinople Women's College. So she's mentored both Halliday and Paraskevi, so she's fond of both of them. This is Dr. Mary Mills-Patrick. Um, and Mills-Patrick, while she is uh, speaking with Paraskevi, giving her, her, giving her encouragement To stay the course, she comes to Paris armed with her own vision, a list of 14 reasons why America should grant Turkey uh, a mandate.
0: So suddenly, from seeing Paris in 1919 as a masculine space, we've been introduced to many of the women who were active at the conference, pushing for different visions of a post-war future. I asked Neville why there were so many women at the conference and why some groups, like the Albanians, thought that women might be particularly powerful advocates for their cause.
1: Because um, women's suffrage was coming to a successful conclusion um, in places like England, like the United Kingdom and the United States, they understood that um, making it seem as if uh, they too were invested and supportive of women's rights and women's not suffrage perhaps but they wanted to put their best and brightest forward. They thought that this would um, help them be seen as modern especially since the terms of peace were being set by um, the allied powers and you know coming from it speaks to a you know a hierarchical kind of view of the world, you know, the kind of the civilizers and the civilized.
0: While the Allied powers claimed the right to dictate political futures around the globe as forces of progress and freedom, only one Allied country included a woman as a member of its official delegation.
1: I brought up China. I mean, China itself was um, a notable exception because it was the only Allied country to include um, a woman um, in its official delegation. And what it, what was striking in that example alone is that Sumei Chang's kind of own pedigree is reflective of America's Protestant empire. I mean, she starts her education at um, a Chinese at a Chinese based American. Protestant
0: school. While Paris wasn't the only woman in Paris in 1919, it's certainly still true that her gender fundamentally shaped her experience there. As a powerful woman in a sea of male diplomats, she got a lot of attention, and not all of it was welcome.
1: It's interesting, I mean, God, in the span of six months, this woman goes through a number of experiences, which make you think, as a 33-year-old woman, she was at the height of her um, sort of attractive powers in a way. She she receives a marriage proposal. So it, it's all arranged by letter uh, from uh, her American Protestant missionary friend back home. She's like, hey, you know, why don't you sort of give it a thought? It, it's someone you know. And Bryce Cavey hesitates. It's not clear from the diary how much she thought of it. She receives a proposal while she's in Paris, while she's dealing with the first instance of harassment um, and so it's it's quite interesting to see just how well she sort of balances her ambitions, um, a, a level of so disillusionment with Wilson um, and also almost uh, sort of traumatized by the fact that her up till then trusted male colleague, a man whose family hers has been supporting back in Boston. He's a family friend. Um, he's a bit older than her. He's also notable in early, Albania, in early 20th century Albanian politics. Um, they come from the same area. They kind of got out of the Balkan Wars together, and so I think she's just very shell-shocked he uh, is sort of the sexual harasser, Grameno. He uh, confesses his love for her, which uh, is highly, un- it's, it's highly unsettling for her.
0: I asked Nebila to read something from Paraskevi's diary about this experience. And just to warn our listeners, what follows might sound all too familiar, perhaps humorously and perhaps enragingly so.
1: So May 13, 1919. Um, it's with reference to persistent, persistent harassment from a senior colleague. Mr. Grameno was here and annoyed me plenty, uh, he annoyed me plenty saying, "I love you, this and that." The blasted fool, a man like him, 50 years old and married to tell me all that. I took his passport to make it a condition that he go back to the United States to his wife and there do as he wishes. He drinks all day. They have a weird relationship too in that she's in charge of him financially. Um, She is part of a semi-political organization funded in part by the Albanian diaspora and uh it's her family sending her money wiring them money in paris and he absolutely grammed I mean, absolutely depends on her so the fact that she's able to snatch his passport and find mechanisms to sort of just you know tell him to go back home and there you know do his own bidding is highly remarkable but the harassment goes on for quite a while and it's And it's upsetting to her because I think uh, he fails to grasp that he is not going to succeed. Um, And that there in Paris, he just kind of loses his sense of purpose. And the other reason why it's kind of fascinating to me is that it seems like he may have a genuine sense of admiration for her, um, but then finds completely inappropriate, um, ways to express it. I mean, I don't think as, as a married man and as a, a father of children, hes I, I don't think he's in the right position to be expressive of this particular form of admiration. But they've been traveling together from New York City Harbor and sort of settling into Paris. And you know, they're alone for prolonged periods of time. And I think it's probably there that he might Starts to see her in a different light, to see an indip- you know what must what must it have been like to see an independent woman with a you know a sense of an unattached woman with quite a bit of power over someone like him? Perhaps I think that's may have been um, a part of his admiration. And you know, she experiences kind of a second taste of something very similar to this with a man in very similar inferior position to her months later I and mean, he comes to her reciting poetry uh, and she recognizes the act for what she thinks it is straight away and calls him a blasted fool in the diary and um, also notes the fact that he's completely on, dependent on her financially. Um, she wants to help him out but at the same time she's like, whoa, what can I do? I mean, I'm, I'm struggling myself.
0: There's something interesting about the amount of romantic interest Paris Givy received in Paris. Perhaps, as Neville suggested, she was just at the height of her attractive powers. And of course, she was always one of the few women in the room. But I also wonder to what degree it was her power, drawn from her family resources, her Protestant education and connections, as well as her own considerable skills as a diplomat, with an E, that drew men to her, hoping to use sex as a way to put her back where she belonged. Despite all of these rather unpleasant challenges, however, Paraskevi did what many women in that period might have done. She laughed it off and kept right on working towards the goals she wanted to achieve. And indeed, her achievements, in the end, were substantial.
1: She's important in giving the Albanian um, question, if we can call it that, um, a bit more higher visibility, um, she leaves uh, Paris, Paris having been um, successful in kind of negotiating for two articles with the Associated Press and the Chicago Tribune, um, calling attention to the plight of Albanian refugees. So people had gotten displaced um, during the war. And um, she's also kind of achieved other sort of would-be important um, sort of decisions. Uh, while in Paris, she talks to um, the head of the Red Cross um, and it is with kind of his help, the European uh, Red Cross, and it is with, head, with his help that the Red Cross sets up actions in, in Albania later later in the year. Um, and they create the Albanian Red Cross in the interwar period through him. Also, she gets uh, interwar women activists plugged into international networks. So the, the particular network that's for women, uh, that's important at this time, it's the International League for Peace and uh, Freedom. I suspect that this is not fully confirmed, but so the head of the European Red Cross is married to a Geneva-based activist, um, who is a member of this um, International League for Peace and Freedom, it is created in 1919 as a parallel structure to the Paris Peace Conference. The allied nations had excluded women from their official delegations, and out of anger, but also out of just the sheer realization that if they're gonna do anything, women have to set up parallel structures. So you had asked, you know, what sorts of roles women play, I think they realize in the course of the war that they want to have their voices and perspectives kind of heard and honored that an international peace would not be successful without women's views of how war and peace affected them as well.
0: In the interwar period, feminist movements arose across the territories of the former Ottoman Empire. Women, mostly from the elite and middle classes, joined together to participate in emerging transnational networks of feminist activism. They also worked to build feminist movements at home. In this, Paraskivi was no exception.
1: She, like Halideh Edip, is kind of at the head of the women's, uh, the women's movement. In I mean, she and her sister actually start off the first uh, Society for Women, um, right after the Young Turk Revolution. Um, and they spearhead um, what becomes a national movement in the interwar period.
0: The interwar period would also bring new directions for the Albanian state.
1: Albania, not magically, but it is, it is by virtue of circumstance. Um, Albania luckily survives sort of uh, the onslaught of... Uh, European, sorry, Italian imperialism in 1919. Um, it's undone in 1939 when Albania becomes an Italian colony. Um, but in 1919, Albania narrowly uh, kind of avoids this course of being, of becoming right, an Italian protectorate. Um, Albania becomes independent. It's recognized uh, as an independent nation by the League of Nations in 1921, so formal recognition. I think that Paraskevi definitely played a role, at least insofar as, you know, the American input was to sort of leave Albania alone.
0: If you stuck with us this far, it won't come as a surprise to you that Paraskevi had a whole host of dreams for herself in this new world. But she was, as we all are, subject to broader historical forces that she could not predict or control. And these would make her activism harder and harder to pursue in the later decades of her life.
1: She has ideas for what she wants to do. Uh, like Holiday Deep, she has this dream of becoming a minister of education. Um, she actually has a roadmap, a plan for making that happen. She shares this plan with the sitting minister of education. And it's not clear what becomes of that. In 1921, her family returned to Albania and they uh, set up their school again. Um, and they seek uh, state funding for it. So and it goes from being you know, a provincial school to the most important school for girls set up in the Albanian capital. It's a private institution, but it, it gains respect and funding, and for, for about 15 years, it is the leading um, educational establishment for girls. It's shut down in 1931. Um, as as a way to deal with uh, the aggressive expansion of Italian investment in Albania. So there have been a lot of Italian private schools, and so the Albanian state, sort of one fell swoop, wants to do away with that. And unfortunately, that means school closure for these guys, uh, her and her family. And for much of the 1930s, they of sit home and write and are bitter about the fact that so much of their work is discredited. And unfortunately, when World War II breaks out, the family is arrested and um, sent to a concentration camp in Belgrade on Hadlaga Banyica. And from that point forward, they're their kind of life is marked by tragedy. Um, the um, Albanian communist state um, takes no interest in them. They have, you know, they're writing from Belgrade in 1944 f- uh, for some sort of help from the state to, you know, to get them home. Um, they have two pregnant women uh, in, with them and the state shows no concern for them whatsoever. Um, this is one of the reasons why the Protestant connection, the family's kind of Protestant work is left out in kind of existing Albanian historiography is because for so much of the communist period, they represented as a, um, a suspicious foreign element. The fact that they had these important British and American connections made them suspicious. They are allowed, to, they do go back, they do go back, um, but all of their sort of professional endeavors are kind of put, put to a halt. Uh, some of them are imprisoned. Her, sis, Paraskevi's sister, dies. For, for a time, for the first two decades, while the communist state is being consolidated, the family is completely shunned. They're condemned to manual labor.
0: Out of all of this tragedy and disappointment, yet again the tables turn, bringing Paraskevi back into public life as an older woman in a new and different frame.
1: I think the state eventually comes to realize that these guys are kind of important. And uh, Paris KV herself having spearheaded the women's movement in the 1920s, boy, you know, she could be be a nice voice for uh, state feminism. In 1967, the Albanian communist state creates important provisions uh, for the women's movement. And so it's the last time that Parscavey appears in public. She is then in her early seventies, I believe, and she's brought to speak as a former member of, of of the movement as a former figurehead herself. And, you know, she comes to speak to a large audience of women, um, from across the country and she recounts her story. Um, I've seen records, printed records of this and nothing about her trajectory as a Christian activist is uh, visible there. And it's sad that at the very end, you'd expect after a life of service, the end would be sweet, but it is unfortunately extremely bitter. from family, you know, from conversations I've had with interviews with family, surviving family members, um, who were very, very reluctant to delve into the Protestant background, almost resisting it and pushing back um, because they had suffered so much during the communist period. What I discovered was that around the same time, you know, she's speaking for women's, you know, um, women's organizations. She is also busy at work burning sacks full of letters um, and documents that would have been so priceless to have at this moment. This particular aspect was frustrating for me to, to work with and sort of dig through what bits and pieces of information I could piece together as to, you know, the family's kind of Protestant history. And
0: it's that occluded Protestant history, erased by the Albanian state, even as it has sought to resuscitate Paya for its own state feminist agenda, that stands at the heart of Nevila's project as a translator and as a historian. Returning to this remarkable woman, not just the pieces of her life and work that later state officials have deemed useful for themselves, but the fullness and the context of her own visions as a feminist, an Albanian nationalist, and a woman deeply forged by Protestant faith and the opportunities it provided in the early years of the 20th century.
1: This is kind of my aim with uh, this, my goal with the translation is to kind of Say that you know. Uh, while scholars have made important inroads into s- just starting to begin the impact of American Protestant influence in Ottoman Europe, we have quite a lot of work um, ahead of us. Part of what speaks to the lack of scholarship quite honestly is is that communism just silenced these voices and everywhere from bulgaria to yugoslavia certainly albania to protestants were persecuted and silenced if not jailed and you know communities that had been thriving for decades had to close in on themselves and go underground and after the fall of communism that's begun to change but it just means that scholarship is is behind. It's still at the beginning, yes.
0: That concludes our interview with Dr. Navila Pahumi. To learn more about the topic and check out related episodes, visit our website at www.autumnhistorypodcast.com. I'm Susie Ferguson. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for another episode of Ottoman History Podcast.